Good afternoon and welcome to the 110th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, it's a discussion of the Democratic National Convention and COVID-19 with Addison Francois and Samantha Montano. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 21st, there are 22,789,780 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 22 million 504,386 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 5,607,993 are in the United States. That's up from 5,553,164 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 174,924 deaths reported in the United States. That's up from 173,699 reported yesterday, another day, more than a thousand deaths from day to day. It's a way to bring some humanity to the numbers. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Howard Croft, longtime DC activist and social justice crusader dies of COVID-19. This was published yesterday in the Washington Post by Finit Nirapil. He helped black Mississippi voters register to vote in the 1960s, crusaded against apartheid South Africa in the 1980s and championed same-sex marriage equality before it became the law of the land. But some of Howard Croft's most important social activism came in the trenches of local politics focused on statehood for DC residents. Croft's relationships with local political leaders, including former Mayor Marion Barry, Delaware, excuse me, um, DC Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton and former DC council member Frank Smith stretched back to the days of civil rights activism in the South. Like them, Croft saw the disenfranchisement of voters in a heavily African-American city denied voting representation in Congress as a natural extension of the voting rights battle of the 1960s. Croft, who died of COVID-19 on June 20th at the age of 78, never held elected office, but he was well known in political circles as a champion of statehood and a regular fixture in local democratic politics and neighborhood meetings. He just thought, if you live in a community, you have a responsibility to make a community a better place, said Hilima Croft, one of Croft's two children. He also had a son, Kofi. As a child, Hilima said she accompanied her dad to weekend meetings of the Ward 6 Democrats. When she was older, she interned for council members at her father's prodding. Howard Croft was raised in Pennsylvania by his grandparents. His mother was just 13 when he was born. Croft's grandparents saved enough money to send him to a private Catholic school before he earned a bachelor's degree from Duquesne University. After a post-college stint fighting for civil rights, he pursued a master's degree in social work at Columbia University and moved to Washington. 
Social justice was the common thread throughout a career that included organizing home healthcare workers for the service, employees, international union, educating inmates at the old DC prison in Lorton, Virginia, and teaching students about the history of labor activism and civil rights as an adjunct professor at the University of the District of Columbia. He would always tease me about going to work on Wall Street, but he still loved to come to the trading floor and look around, said Helena Croft, who works in finance in New York City. He was someone who really appreciated disparate viewpoints and loved to engage in rigorous intellectual debate. Croft paid close attention to international affairs and traveled to South Africa, Turkey, and Vietnam, among other places. He also sailed on the waters of the Chesapeake Bay, around Solomon's Island, Maryland, and off the coast of Florida, fulfilling the childhood dreams of a boy who grew up near the Susquehanna River and later joined the Coast Guard Auxiliary Force. He was hospitalized in the summer of 2019 after falling off his boat and doctors diagnosed him with multiple myeloma, a form of cancer. Croft continued to attend neighborhood meetings and his daughter said had hoped to canvas in his native Pennsylvania this fall on behalf of Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden. He had canvassed there in 2016 and was crushed by President Trump winning the state, Helena Croft said, but he was not surprised, he told her, not after union voters who had previously backed Barack Obama refused to tell him who they were supporting when he knocked on their doors. After developing respiratory problems this spring, Croft was diagnosed with COVID-19 and hospitalized at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore in late May, he never left. Croft died less than a week before the House of Representatives made history on June 26 by passing DC statehood legislation for the first time. His family buried him in Pennsylvania wearing a DC statehood pin. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. Really excited to introduce you to my two guests. Professor Addison Francois is the director of the Civil Rights Voting Rights Institute at Georgetown University Law Center. Prior to joining the Georgetown faculty, Professor Francois directed the Civil Rights Clinic at Howard University School of Law, where he also taught constitutional law, federal civil rights, and Supreme Court jurisprudence. Professor Francois received his JD from New York University School and clerked for the late Honorable A. Leon Higginbotham, Jr., Chief Judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. In 2008, the transition team of President Barack Obama appointed Professor Francois the lead agency reviewer for the United States Commission on Civil Rights. My second guest, Samantha Montano, has a doctorate in emergency management from North Dakota State University. She is currently an assistant professor of emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy. She writes a free monthly disaster newsletter that you can sign up for on her website, disasterology.com. Be sure to check that out. And her forthcoming book about disasters and climate change will be published by Park Row Books next summer. Addison and Samantha, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thanks for having us. It's good to be with you, Scott. So today's a little bit of an unconventional COVID call. So we'll certainly hear about your research and your writing, but I've asked my guests today if they wouldn't mind sort of stepping in as political commentators as well as we take stock of the Democratic National Convention that wrapped up last night. 
And we'll turn to that. We have plenty of time for that. And we have time for your calls uh, and comments today. If you want to get those into the YouTube live chat, you just put it there or you can um, put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at USF Disaster. So let's start the way we usually do. Just find out where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 situation is there today. Sam, can I start with you, please? Yeah, sure. So I am currently in Southern Maine. Uh, things are going relatively well here compared to many other places around the country. Um, since the pandemic begun, we've had a bit over 4,000 cases for the whole state and just over 100 deaths. Um, so again, compared to other places, we're, we're hanging in there. And you shared before we came on, you just got some news about your teaching for the fall. Yeah, so all of my classes will be online this fall. So I'll be staying in Maine a bit longer before going back down to Boston. Is there a considerable difference between um, what's happening in different parts of, of New England or is it pretty consistent across New England as far as you know? Um, across New England, the numbers are low compared to other parts of the country, but there are kind of some hot spots popping up and some concerns about Boston specifically in, in the near future. So some, some differences. Addison, same question to you. Um, yeah, I'm calling from South Carolina, um, particularly Hilton's Head, South Carolina. Um, I've only been here for a few days. Um, it seems as if Hilton Head is a bit of a enclave, if you will. Um, I know that they have a local ordinance mandating masks in public everywhere. Hmm. Uh, and in every single places that I've been to, though I haven't been out that often, but including public places such as grocery stores, um, supermarkets, etc., cetera, um, everybody seems to be complying with the mask mandate. There are public signs everywhere along traffic circles and all of that. So I know that this South Carolina is one of those things that experienced something of a, of a surge, but it seems as if um, it hasn't hit, from what I understand, mm. had very hard. I know in some states, uh, particularly in the South and the Midwest, there were attempts at local ordinances and it caused friction between local mayors and, and governors. It sounds like maybe they've avoided that there in South Carolina from what you're describing. Whether or not politically it's been friction behind the scenes, I don't know. But again, it's sort of, um, you know, I, I normally would call from from Virginia, uh, where I sort of DC, and I live in a community in Virginia, where again, you know, uh, uh, the mass mandate has been received as a fairly routine matter, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's never been any instances of so-called public protest about any of the measures that the board um, has taken. Um, and I expected something different, at least in South Carolina, but at least in the small area where I am, it seems as if it's been assumed to be pretty routine. Mm. Well, that's, that's good to hear. And thank you both mm. for this context. And we've got the sort of uh, Eastern seaboard locked down here. I'm in New Jersey. So we're, we're mm -hmm. spanning from Maine to South Carolina. Let's turn to the convention. And I guess I wanted to just ask you both first, sort of like what your headline is coming out of it. Um, 
was it an effective convention? What are the one or two things that you took away from it sort of at a, at a high level? And then I'm going to ask you about individual moments within it. Um, Sam, can I start with you? I, I don't know if, if each of you watched every minute, but maybe between the three of us, we got most of it covered. I watched as much as I could. What's your, what's your headline, Sam? Yeah, I watched all of it except the second night. Um, I think it was kind of what I expected to see. Um, I think kind of given the context of the moment and the challenges of the pandemic, I think um, they handled a lot of things well. I think that there's plenty to be critiqued as well, although I don't know how much of that is a critique of like the Democratic Party right now versus the critique of the convention. Um, but, um, you know, they they had a, to me, it seemed like they had a very clear audience that they were speaking to. They were, you know, kind of targeting that more undecided, disgruntled conservative voter was my impression, um, which is fine, I guess. Addison, what was your, what was some of your takeaway from that sort of top level stuff? Top level stuff, uh, let's see, maybe three or four headlines. Generally, in terms of general themes of the convention, my headline would be light over darkness. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of specific themes of individuals, the, which we can obviously get into detail later, uh, my headline for um, Joe Biden would be Joe Biden, the new American male. Mm. Uh, my headline for... Um, Barack Obama would be Barack Obama, I still believe. Uh, or Barack Obama still believes, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and my headline for Michelle Obama probably would be Michelle Obama, the chameleon code switch. Um, and I can get into details about that, but that probably would be, would be sort of my individual headlines for some of the moments that sort of stuck out with me with respect to some of the main speakers. And, and, and like Sam, I cannot claim to have watched every single minute, but I did try to catch uh, most of it. Well, that's great. So many good points to start from there. Um, Sam, just to come back to one point that you made there about the audience, um, you, you picked up notes that seemed to be aimed not at Democrats. They were aimed at either Republicans who had voted for when you say disgruntled Republicans, what kind of what kind of things were you seeing that that triggered that thinking for you? Because I, I thought that I saw a bit of that myself and I was curious about if that's worth spending any time on in a convention. And yet it does seem like they were willing to. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Colin Powell was there. There were other Republicans that were there endorsing him. So I, right. I think that's kind of the most obvious. Um, but even, I mean, some of the way they were talking about climate change felt um, kind of moving more uh, towards a more conservative audience. I think the like super heavy focus on jobs, um, you know, they had farmers represented, kind of those more conservative stereotypes were, were represented in, in the way they were talking about specific issues. Addison, mm -hmm. is that a... a you know, in conventions that you've watched in the past, is that a, a normal feature you expect to see from Democrats sometimes spent trying to not just gather independence, but even 
maybe gather disaffected Republicans? It was a mental issue, if I can be as categorical as to say it's a feature of the Democratic Convention, but it was somewhat similar to the one that um, um, Hillary Clinton put up last year. If you recall, um, last year, for perhaps reasons different than Biden had, she did have a fairly large number of folks talking about national security issues, folks mm -hmm. who had been Republican. She had a fairly, there was one that was completely dominated by the military um, and trying to reassure some segments that you wouldn't be um, awake on the military, if you will. That headline, that same that was also heavily dominated, if you recall, um, after the following the Mothers of the Movement, there was also a fairly big, you know, number of folks who talk favorably of um, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I know that Hillary Clinton had her reasons for wanting to highlight her expertise in national security and foreign policy matters over Trump. But in that way, I didn't think that Biden's convention was different. If anything, he probably did it a little less than she did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. And I was thinking about the, a bit about how this convention was, to me, it really underlined the point that it's Barack Obama's, it's the Obama's party mm -hmm. at, at this point. I mean, that was a, a difference from the last campaign, obviously with Hillary at the, at the head of the ticket, it, it would be a Clinton, um, it would be a Clinton party, but, you know, looking at the speakers and, and looking at the tone and the kind of speech that Barack Obama gave, um, tonally, it did feel very different to me from 2016. I, and part of that, of course, is, and I want to get to this with both of you, we've never had a party convention in the midst of a disaster. Mm -hmm. We've had them in the middle of wars, certainly, 68, 44, and and. 1864, certainly, but never in the middle of a of an ongoing pandemic. And I, I guess I want to, it's sort of a general question, but to each of you, what do you think that added to this moment? Or how do you think that the ongoing disaster was present throughout? Did it, did it seem to manifest itself, not in specific policies, but did you, how did you feel it there as a as a presence. And I guess one obvious way is that literally we watched it all on our computer screens the whole time. But I'm sort of curious of your experience of literally watching the COVID convention. We, it's, it is making history. And as a historian, I'm always reluctant to say that something is happening for the first time, but it did feel historic in that way. Sam, I don't know. Did you have any, it, what was your, what was your sense of that? Did you feel like you were watching you're a disasterologist. Did you feel like you were really watching a convention that was grappling with disaster? Uh, kind of. It, it was really strange because the overarching theme, I know everyone's been using the light and dark theme, but it was really kind of like a disaster and like rebuilding from disaster was more kind of my framing of it. Right. And so it was weird to have that entire framing, his slogan, build back better with that very strong disaster connection, to have that overarching the entire thing. But then also it did kind of feel like there was an absence of, of specific policy or, or like talking about the pandemic in, in specific ways. Like it, it was mentioned throughout, of course, but it wasn't 
um, I don't know, it didn't feel like it was driving the convention. It seemed like kind of the normal issues that you would hear at the convention were all, you know, gun control, immigration, right? Like they hit all those major ones um, in in kind of just the typical way. So it, it was a, a bit disorienting. I think though, like to be fair, I think most of us are struggling with how to talk about the pandemic. Uh, mm. It's something like I've been struggling with for months. I think it's part of the reason why you are doing these calls. Um, so that part isn't too surprising, um, too surprising. Addison, same question to you. I, I'm really impressed with Sam, that point. I keep having to remind myself of that point. We're living through this, but we still are constantly facing that we have to reinterpret a new way of talking or an institution into COVID. Um, I don't know, Addison, what was your take on the convention in the midst of this disaster? Did it feel disrupted? Yes and no. And, and I want to be careful in how I explain it. That's what I'm thinking. In a way, I was surprised by the extent to which COVID wasn't as present during the convention as I would have expected. Right, um, But in a way, that's not surprising. It's interesting that a moment ago, when you phrased your question, you talked about how we've never had an election in the midst of a disaster like this, though we've had it in the midst of war. And one of the wars that you cited was after this is a civil war. And, you know, and I've been thinking about that because that's one of the issues that came up for me during the convention, that part of me was surprised that there wasn't as much focus in um, explaining the extent to which and the depth to which the country had paid such an awful price, awful price um, for um, the management of, of this disaster. I mean, even at the beginning uh, of us talking, it was quite extraordinary listening to you read just this one obituary of this one person and understand the magnitude of the loss. But I think, you know, they were trying to do something else, maybe. Um, and that's what I mentioned, the Civil War. You know, if you recall, Lincoln's second inaugural address was given before it was completely over. But the whole thing of the second inaugural address was really trying to explain to the country how to see beyond the war, what would happen after the war or trying to get people to imagine life after the war, life beyond the war. And I think a lot of that theme of the convention, uh, for the main speakers particularly, was not just criticizing Trump's management of this, uh, of this pandemic, but also trying to paint a picture of what life can be afterwards, which is the reason why, obviously, you know, some of it was light on specifics and, and plans. I don't know. I'm not a professional in terms of politics. I don't know whether or not it will work, but that's the message that I, as a sort of non-professional audience member, kept hearing over and over in my, in my head that there is a way you can see beyond the mm. awfulness of the present times in the same way that what Lincoln did during the second ago address was to basically try to paint for the country what life could be life, like when this was over. That's, I hadn't thought of it in that context. I mean, it's really, Interesting, and it again it points to the rhetorical challenge of a presidential aspirant in the middle of crisis, national mm -hmm. crisis. There's this tension, right, that they want to speak about 
they want to show that they're competent to understand what's at hand. But elections are about futures, right? Mm -hmm. and, and painting pictures of, of futures. I, and I agree with both of you. And, I, and I, I think it was light on COVID specifics. And even on COVID blame, I, I expected more. At the, towards the end of Biden's speech last night, which I was listening to very closely, all of a sudden he switched into this mode where he said, by the way, I will have a national mask mandate and there will be PPE. And we and he listed like the five things that would have kept this pandemic from being so bad. And I I sat up straight. I was like, I don't think I've heard that yet in this convention. Like this very granular, like public mm -hmm. health kind of stuff. It, I, I hadn't connected it with this sort of broader need to convey a vision past the pandemic, the way you just described it, Patterson. Mm -hmm. Um Sam, you mentioned just back to that point, it, it throws into an, into light again your point about the build back better slogan. And some of the people listening may not realize that that's not something that a DNC idea shop came up with. Like that idea has deep grounding in da disaster risk reduction, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I think that's actually one of the reasons I was a little disoriented watching the convention was that you're right, the mask mandate and the actual plan for how to stop the actual response to the pandemic came at the end. And so it, it felt like that should have come first and then to go on to the vi vision building, right? Once we have this under control. Um, but to get to that vision building piece, right? <laughs> Biden's slogan for his campaign is build back better, which is deeply fascinating from a disaster perspective. The term dates back to 2004 after the Indian Ocean tsunami. Bill Clinton is credited with kind of popularizing the phrases he was talking about the international aid that would be required to rebuild many of the countries affected by the tsunami. And since then, after most major disasters, you can find the term referenced. Um, it was the title of one of Puerto Rico's recovery plans uh, most recently. Mm -hmm. um, it's a phrase that is used by, you know, everybody from presidents to governors to mayors to even some large uh, international nonprofits use it. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, well, you know, I understand why Biden selected it, right? The thinking is that the Trump administration has been a disaster. We are in those four crises that he identified, the economic crisis, racial crisis, uh, the pandemic, and the climate crisis. And so coming out of those, we need to rebuild the country, essentially. Um, and so the phrase itself is kind of a, a natural fit for that idea where um, I think some disaster researchers have cringed at it is that we know from doing research that this term build back better has some you know, some specific connotations and very often communities do not rebuild back better after a disaster that their, um, you know, recovery plans very often do not include marginalized groups within the community, that uh, these plans to build back better can force marginalized groups out of the community. Um, and it, so to hear that phrase used for the entire campaign and um, for the recovery for the recovery for the country is uh, is 
uh, kind of in conflict with a lot of what they are trying to talk about, right? They're trying to bring up environmental justice and the way they talk about climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, you're trying to talk about um, racial inequality and systemic racism. And so to, to know that history and how that very often plays out post-disaster, there, there's a real mismatch there um, with using that slogan. But of course, the, the general public doesn't know that history. So perhaps slightly overcritical, but. No, I, 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 I share that. I think the, the missing pronoun there always distresses me. You know, I mean, who's, who's doing this building back and for whom and the missing temporality is always a little jarring to me too. I mean, under what, under what, time frame is that reconstruction gonna gonna happen i just want to remind people who are listening to COVID calls talking about the dnc convention with anderson francois and samantha montano Anderson, you had great headlines when we started, so let me pick up. Uh, let's pick up Barack Obama and some of the immediate um, punditry around this speech was that it it was different from something we've seen from past presidents before. Um, and he just, I'm going to just read one line from it. He says the consequences of Donald Trump's failures: 170 million Americans dead, millions of jobs gone while those at the top take in more than ever, our worst impulses unleashed. Um, your take on the speech and is it right? Is this more shrill than we expect of a former president or is this actually in line with what we may have heard previously? I mean, I think this notion that this is unprecedented is a bit overblown. Mm. Um, in the past, you know, predecessors have criticized um, sitting presidents in sort of much harsher terms, including say FDR's predecessors, um, certainly criticized them in much, much harsher terms than this. Moreover, I'm, I wasn't quite as taken aback as some others about um, his tone. I think his tone certainly was more serious, um, less hopeful, more um, sort of dire perhaps, but the substantive theme of Obama's speech did not change. I mean, the sort of narrative genius that Obama has always sort of held on to is that he always found a way to tell a story of the country that acknowledges its past sins, if you will, while still not casting blame. So the, the sort of theme that he always hangs on to is progress. And the way that he frames the theme is to talk about working toward a perfect union. Um, so he always explains that our union was never perfect who've always worked toward it. Of course, folks have criticized him, sometimes widely, sometimes unfairly, for the fact that the way he explains his theme always makes it seem as if progress has been linear, right. as opposed to a constant process of retrenchment and rec reconstruction. And in some ways, I didn't think the, uh, that night's speech was adapted a different theme, because what he was trying to say is that, yes, we've always been working toward a perfect union, and he still insisted that he believed that we could work toward that perfect thing. 
I mean, when you basically sort of break down that speech uh, into its component parts, I think that's the message that he was trying to convey, that he still believes in the vision of America as one that is forever working toward a perfect union, and that he saw he saw Trump as an aberration. Mm. Now, you and I may talk about this, and we say that is not true. In fact, Trump is simply the logical endpoint of something that's been long coming in certain segments of the American party, right? I mean, that would have been a sort of people from us, but that's not what he said. And, and obviously, I mean, I'm not saying that I expected him to say something different. I just didn't react as others did by being taken aback by the tone. Look, I think Obama has always been very conscious of the fact that he cannot express certain emotions fully and completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, he cannot express anger fully, right. and he cannot express sadness fully. If he expresses anger fully, he'll be characterized as a thug. If right. he expresses sadness and grief fully, he'll be characterized as a con man. Think about the tears that he shed in the wake of these elementary kids being gunned down. I mean, right. in normal media, people were basically making fun of him that in fact he was faking right. Right? Right. Um, yeah. And imagine, and think about the grief that he was given the very first time he made a comment on race when Skip Gates got arrested and he basically called the action of the police officers stupid. He had to apologize twice yeah. and he had to hold a beer summit with the officer in Gates. That's right. So, you know, I think at some point there were people who commented that they thought that he seemed close to tears, right? And maybe he was, but what I saw is something that I've always seen. A man who is deeply, deeply conscious of the fact that he always has to hold himself and everything inside of him in public. That's what I saw the other day. I think that is what an important perspective to bring to show the parameters, the sort of rhetorical parameters that he has to work within. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I I heard that same thing. People felt he was close to tears. I I didn't, I listened to it rather than watching it, but I, there was a moment in which he said, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but something like if, if there was ever a group of people who, who had the right to believe that this was all a failure, that democracy really was, I don't want to mangle an Obama speech. So I don't, people remember this moment where he basically says this. He said, it was, it is, it is black people in America. Yeah. And if they have the, the willingness in this moment, you know, I thought that was, it, it may still be in that same time zone of what you're yeah. describing as sort of Obama narrative speech. It seems it was strong though. It was definitely a strong moment. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I mean, I I don't know if Sam has a different view of it, but uh, uh, he he came close to the edge. Yeah. And and he held himself. But, you know, you know, I I always, you know, we can critique and I've critiqued Obama for, even though I worked for him, you know, I always critique him for years. But I understand. I understand why he will never step over the line that he can't. Um, but I, I take your point, Scott. That line, I never expected to hear that he would have said that. I never did. You're describing this sort of 
parameters within which Obama works rhetorically also helps us understand why um, some of the satire over the years of Obama, uh, you know, that he needed an anger translator at one point, the Key and Peel, sort of famous Key and Peel yeah. bit where they, you know, why it's funny because yeah. people understand that the, the boundaries with, within which he's operating. Um, Sam, let me turn it over to you if you have any comment about that that speech or what you thought about more generally the way uh, race was being discussed in the convention and anything to those to those points? Yeah, no, I, I think you kind of covered it. I was watching it and I watched it after it had aired live. So I'd already kind of read what people had written and I kind of felt the same way that you did as well. I didn't necessarily think he was close to tears or, you know, I don't, it was kind of the speech I would have expected. Again, he's working within these parameters and, you know, there's this feeling that he needs to be some kind of savior or something for the party and for the country. And I don't, you know, I don't, in so many ways, we're so far into this crisis. We're so far into the administration that I don't, know that there is one person to be that. I, I don't know what the speech is that kind of fills that place for people. So I, I think he handled it, you know, as best as he could be expected to. Maybe there was a moment where you both heard it in the convention, but I felt like, I mean, I'm still, and I've talked about this with several folks on COVID calls much smarter than me. I'm still knocked out by the convergence of, of the fact that George Floyd had coronavirus and was recovering from it when he was murdered. And the statistics in African-American communities of case rates, infection rates, death rates, I mean, that connection there, and, and Sam, you were, you were pointing to sort of the four horsemen of the, of the convention, the climate crisis, the racial justice crisis, the pandemic and the economy. I was expecting more fusion of those, more bringing of those into one into one frame because it's such a powerful way to critique where we are in the United States right now. This pandemic has ha, doesn't allow us to treat them separate as separate and parallel trajectories of American life anymore. They're all combined. Maybe Addison, I don't know, that's maybe that's not the way it works in a convention. Maybe I'm expecting too much of of convention rhetoric, but I, I sort of know like to know what you what you what you think about that. I mean, believe it or not, and not to go back to Obama, but I think perhaps he came closest in a very passing line to sort of bringing those four things together. Because you're right, George Floyd, the black man, was um, killed, presumably in the midst of being arrested because he was trying to pass, you know, barely a $20 bill that was fair. Um, and it appears that um, he had COVID-19 and he also was suffering from some chronic underlying health conditions that tends to afflict African-American in general and African-American men in particular. Um, Obama sort of tried to weave all these things together but only mentioning Floyd by name, but also there was a line in the speech, and again, I'm paraphrasing as we were, that 
communities were being destroyed by having um, someone step over their necks. In other words, he phrased the line not about Floyd himself, the prior line had mentioned Floyd, but he was trying to describe an entire community feeling as if they had somebody's knee on their necks. Mm -hmm. um, which again goes further um, than he has in the past, including specifically using the phrase um, uh, systemic racism. But maybe I have low expectations, but I never expected the convention nominating Biden would actually make those four themes the mm -hmm. centerpiece of the story in part because of the story that Biden has always told about himself and the way that he's always situated himself in that story. Obama has a story and he places himself in that story in a way that makes sense. I think Biden has one too, and he places himself in it in a way that makes sense as well. You know? And you, you can't mistake it. It's very, very, very clear. So just to remind folks, you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about the DNC convention. Sam, I want to ask you a variant of that last question. I know you, you're always uh, paying attention to the way our elected officials and aspirant officials talk about climate and emergency management. If those two words were spoken, emergency management, I didn't hear them. Um, but again, an opportunity um, to bring together what are layers of violence um, that presumably a party would want to explain, interpret, and give a solution for. I mean, that is ultimately, uh, again, if we're thinking of the future of the country, that's what these conventions are about. So how do you rate the DNC on the way they framed climate change? What did you see that you thought worked? And what did you see that left you wanting more? Yeah, well, you know, I think that in the same way they struggled with the pandemic narrative, there is this persistent struggle with the climate narrative. And I, you know, obviously I'm coming at climate change from a disaster perspective, but like I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, the the narrative was, Biden's quote was, when I think of climate, I think of jobs which is fine, right? That is part of the climate crisis, but the convention really just fell right along kind of party lines in terms of how climate has been talked about in you know, the past year um, at the, uh, they played a video about climate change, I think on the second, third night, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> they played a video about climate change. And again, the like narrative over the video was this whole thing about jobs. And it was, you know, heavily focused on clean energy, which again is an important piece of that conversation. But then yet again, the background of the video was footage of all of the recent disasters from across mm -hmm. the country, hurricanes, flooding, wildfires. And yet there was nothing about what to actually do about those disasters outside of mitigating climate change itself through clean energy. And so again, it felt like this adaptation half was 
completely absent, nearly completely absent. It's the same narrative that um, came to the forefront during like the climate, the CNN climate town halls that they did a few months ago, mm. where they were having, you know, live footage of Dorian playing in the background and yeah. not acknowledging emergency management, not talking about that policy reform to the extent that they do talk about climate adaptation. It's in terms of, you know, well, everyone's going to have to move and not a lot of details about how to do that um, in any kind of just way. And I, I also, you know, I don't, ex I, of course, the words emergency management were not mentioned and I wouldn't have expected them to be. Um, but it, it does point to this serious disconnect between understanding the urgency of climate change and, and um, still not totally making this connection about how people who are experiencing the consequences of climate change need help now. I mean, in the mm -hmm. middle of this convention, you have a failing slow response in Iowa. You have California and Colorado on fire. And it, it just felt like uh, problematic, but also a missed opportunity to really connect with the voters across the country that have been affected by disasters for the past four years. I mean, there is a pretty long list of communities in all different states um, that have been through disasters during the Trump administration and kind of have this firsthand connection to the the challenges and the inadequacies of our emergency management system and, and are on the front lines of climate change. And I think to, to focus so narrowly on jobs, again, I, I, I think that was the audience they were going for, but mm. it just it, there's it's still this huge disconnect. Addison, you want to come in on that? Yeah, there's one. I, I agree 100% with what Sam said. And I will preface what I'm about to say by indicating that I have never worked on a campaign as a professional. In other words, I don't know what it takes to get to 270, right? But my assumption is that a convention is not just about the audience, but for better or for worse, as much as the convention may be a big shaggy beast, every single convention is a reflection of the person at the top of the ticket, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this, this convention was a reflection of Biden, right? And Biden has always been this sort of, his personality has always been this sort of muscular, American, can-do, but fundamentally good. I don't know if you, if you guys remember the last three lines of his convention speech for Hillary, because they always stuck with me. They're Ooh. completely nonsensical lines, but they make sense. This is what he said. He basically said a bunch of things. He says, we are Americans, second to none, and we own the finish line. What does that mean? <laughs> mean anything, right? Yeah. But yet, yeah. he, his personality has always been about this sort of fun, this sort of big protector, provider, but somebody who's part of familiar's personality has been sort of softened by the grief and loss that he's experienced, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I thought all he was doing, all they were trying to do um, was simply saying this sort of big-hearted can-do guy who knows how to care for people will get you through this, just trust me. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think all these details about 
plans and policies were missing because it's as much about signs and symbols as plans and policies, right? Mm -hmm. And it remains to be seen whether or not that very, very simplistic narrative, knowing that the most simple narratives are also the most convincing, whether it will work, you know? And I don't think Biden was speaking to someone like me, but I don't think he thought that he needs to. Right. And perhaps at the end of the day, he doesn't need to, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> when we, yeah. So if you were to ask me, well, overall, leaving the algorithm uh, in terms of the policy prescriptions, in terms of the way there was a missed opportunity to frame climate change in a different way, I agree with all that. Um, but if I had to guess as a non-professional, I think he connected with the audience that he cared to connect with. I think that the way you described him is also makes his build back better slogan so fitting for his campaign, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's about symbolism. It's about, oh no, there's a disaster. Like we're gonna come back and all come together. So it really, I, I mean, it, it does make sense for for kind of that history of his of his life and the political or in the public eye. Someone, not me, someone was, and I forget who it was, but today they were commenting on the fact that obviously the typical female politician would never be able to get away with what he's gotten away with. The word that you heard a lot of, a lot in the convention last two days was empathy, 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 mm -hmm. empathy, empathy, empathy. Right. But the only way, the, the reason why it works with him is because he already has a sort of, sort of male, masculine, sort of working guy, sort of background and personality. So of course it can be softened with empathy. And if you soften it with empathy, you don't quote unquote feminize him. You simply make him better. Whereas to some other politicians, including some male politicians, I think with Obama, Obama never talked about empathy in that way because he would have turned, they would have turned, they would have feminized Obama had he done mm -hmm. so. But he can get away with it. He can. This when you were we were talking earlier, you said the headline for Biden, maybe Addison, was the new American male. Is this what you mean by that? Yeah. And again, I can't take credit for it. I'm sorry, I can't remember who said it out the top of my head, but they basically pointed out that yes, mm -hmm. the politician probably would not have gotten away with as much sort of trust me, I'll care for you, I'll take care of you. But it made sense for him. I think it's really um interesting too that he he was not getting away with this kind of very vague talk about climate, you know, to say, well, what is the solution to climate change? And then just have some stock footage of a solar array or something like that. And then Gavin Newsom, who got two minutes to talk about California's 300 fires and then the folks from Iowa in the roll call, you see those poor people standing up there said, please don't forget us in Iowa. We had a derecho. And then it's like, they're on to the next, you know, it was these weird hit and miss moments it was not working for him during the nominating season. I mean, he would say these very vague things and um, even Amy Klobuchar and, and yeah. certainly Jay Inslee were saying, wait a minute, let's talk specific things. Yeah. But we're past that now. And a convention is something different from a nominating season as you're both, as you're both pointing out. I think that that idea that he's really, that none of the three of us were, were much the audience, he's, I mean, really, I mean, I would like to have the scientists get up there and tell me their 100-point plan 
with the emergency management being 25 of those points, like Sam would as well, she'd probably want more than 25, but um, that's not that's not who we were. We're not the ones he's trying to persuade with that, I guess. Well, and I'm not trying to, to say that. talk down about other people. I think we all have things that we connect with. Like, you know, I, I, I like to think of myself as a sort of person who don't fall easily for the sort of how strings pulling sort of thing. But you know, the kid who was stuttering, it got to me. I yeah. mean, it really, really did. And I almost That's never good. fall for this. I, exactly. And I think, you know, that sort of Obama speech that he gave very short, few and specific, very much about American past and identity and how to reclaim it in the best way. Uh, I think on an emotional, I don't think it's anything to do with intellect. On an emotional level, it was designed to connect with a certain group of people. And if it works, you know, more power to him. There, yeah. there are other ways he could have connected with me, not on the intellect, but on the emotional. He didn't have to come with a hundred point plan. Look, when he basically opened the speech by quoting Ella Baker, it wasn't intellectual for me. It was emotional because I'm thinking, it was damn, I've never yeah. seen a white politician open an acceptance speech with a quote from a black woman revolutionary. I mean, yeah. if people read some of what Baker said, then it would scare the hell out of them. Yeah. But emotionally, I said, wow, it got to me. Even though I realized it was, it was a cheap thing that he was throwing me, right? But I still bought it. That was uh, this point has has just been raised by Amy Slayton, one of the one of the viewers, and uh, this question about whether or not it was uh, is this in some ways also sort of a, a tip of the hat to the register that Donald Trump has moved us into in the last three and a half years, which is that you we're going to lead with affect, and if policies come behind, that's that's fine, um, or in Trump's case, doesn't they don't need to. Um, but I, I think that's interesting in a way I'm, I'm always hesitant to give him credit for much, but maybe another way that Trump has shaped our politics in this moment, um, is these gestures, be they of anger or be they of compassion or whatever they are, but they're, it's, it's a lot of it is about affect. A lot of it is about registering an emotion and getting people on board in that in that mode rather than saying can we agree that this is a global challenge and we need we need some policy prescriptions to deal with it um we're we've got a a little bit of time left and i want there's a couple things i still want to get to um and one of them has to do with um the so we talked about climate change and and i want to talk a little bit there was another moment in here that i thought was important and it comes back to something Sam said earlier about maybe reaching out to the disaffected Trump voter. Remember this part where Kristen Urquiza, she was only two minutes. And Addison, you were talking about the the, the boy with the stuttering um, who was tremendous. And I it worked for me too. A really powerful moment. But Kristen Urquiza is leading a movement basically at, at Republicans, as far as I can tell. Um, her father's political orientation is never discussed, and she's actually, there's a whole website that explores um, her family, but her father um, took Trump at his word, she said, and when Trump said, hey, this is not so big a deal, um, he listened to Trump and went out and got COVID-19 and died, and she's framing this as a sort of a Trump can't be trusted 
moment. Um, I don't know if that one, if, if either of you caught that, it was a, it was a small moment, but again, Sam, back to your earlier point about sort of uh, gestures to try to make it okay for Republicans or independents to say enough of Trump, he's just incompetent. Did you see that part? Yeah, I did see it. I actually, that stood out to me as potentially one of the more important parts of the convention. I think, you know, I don't, there are so many people across the country that have lost somebody to COVID or have directly had their lives impacted by being sick themselves or, you know, having family members that have now long-term health effects from COVID. And I think that kind of group of people is itself a, a you know, a, a group that needs to be spoken to. I mean, I think what she's doing is really important. I mean, these disaster deaths, whether it's COVID or, or whatever, disaster deaths are political. And I don't think that it helps us to act like they're not. I mean, we're talking about these very preventable deaths and the, the fact that the severity of this pandemic was in many ways preventable if, actions had been taken at the federal level, but specifically by the president, we would be in a very different place than we are right now. And I think putting that responsibility back onto him and drawing that direct line between his actions and inactions throughout this response back to the very real deaths that have rippled across the country is important, not, uh, not necessarily for voting purposes, but to to make this connection to these policy decisions that are being made and to understand that politics is completely central to how the remainder of this pandemic unfolds and that you know we're in this situation largely because of decisions made by elected officials and that the only way we're getting out of it is by decisions made by elected officials. Addison, I don't know if you saw that point. I mean, I think Sam's right on. She says we try to treat disasters as apolitical. That was a moment of complete honesty. It's like you you can't disentangle the politics from the perception of this virus, and here's the result. Did you did you did you also see that that moment in the convention? Yes, and I think what Sam just said should be basically blazed the course the sky. Um, because you're right, and, and I don't know what the solution is or how to change it, because there's an extent to which we treat all disasters, including pandemic, almost as if it is, is you know, God-made. But I think she's right, that this, where we are right now, are the results of deliberate decisions or lack thereof made by people. And the only way we're going to get out of it is by people making different decisions. I think Sam is 100% right. I, I think my fear is that the vast majority of the public haven't quite internalized that point yet. Mm-hmm. That it is a, you, yes, it is a virus that you can't see, but it is a human disaster. Yeah. You know, because of what we've done or not done or failed to do. And perhaps, my, you know, I think, Sam is right, if there is to be one fundamental critique of the convention, is that perhaps that point wasn't hammered home as much as it could have. When I saw that, and I saw how much, and I agree with what you're both saying, but I saw how little time 
was actually spent really sharpening that point. It reminded me once again that I'm not, I'm again, I'm not like the target of a lot of these communications because fundamentally I can't see disasters as anything other than politics playing out. Disasters are a form of politics as far as I'm concerned. I think that point, Addison, as you said, I think the American public is not is not there. I, I still, I think there's a lot of daylight between the way a lot of Americans think of COVID-19 or any disaster and the actual politics that are unfolding within within parties. I, you know, I, it's, it's like Hurricane Andrew that flattened yeah. out Florida. Sure. But yes, it was a natural disaster, but it was because for years we'd established certain building codes that permitted this to happen, right? Yeah. Or fires that burn out entire communities because we permit people to build in places that maybe they shouldn't build because we ensure them in ways that we shouldn't. All of these are political decisions, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, just coming up on time, I want to make sure just a quick, um, before we lose it, Addison, you said you thought the headline for Michelle Obama was a code switch. Uh, what did you mean by that? Very quickly, I know that our time is up. I think Michelle Obama has always had the supreme talent that her husband also has, which I call almost the sort of Oprah effect, where she can basically speak plainly to multiple audiences across race, across class, without ever sounding inauthentic or pandering. That she will say something that will immediately connect with black audiences and will also connect at the same time with white suburban audiences. And what we saw the other day was a masterclass in that. Everybody's focusing on a critique of Trump, but what you really saw was basically a class in code switching by a black woman, mm. uh, which was a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah, it was an amazing speech. And she returned to those notes about the low and high. And when she started onto that, I thought, I think we've heard about all of this we can hear. And yet she brought it, it was it was great again. I, you know, mm -hmm. it's, um, I, last word on this, um, maybe if you want to predict headlines, since you were so good at giving after the fact headlines, next week, GOP convention, uh, and next Friday, uh, we, I'll have two more commentators who'll come and do that uh, discussion uh, next Friday. But what are you expecting to see? Sam, you first. How are they going to do four days and how are they going to handle COVID? I don't know. I think my greatest hope right now is that there isn't misinformation about how people are protecting themselves for the pandemic. I'm really worried about him going on there and talking about you know, made up medical treatments and um, you know, advocating for schools to reopen, right? Doing all of those things that we don't need uh, related to the actual response and then who knows what else, but that's the one I, I'm most worried about because of the potential tangible effect right away. Um, I, I can give a real headline because I think I want this very much to remain in, not an R-rated show, but it, it's easy enough to predict because it's already said that. I'm serious. Uh, you notice that almost every single night of, 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 of the DNC convention, it wasn't about only Biden. You could have yeah. basically picked different moments. Every single night of the convention for the ANC will be about Trump. You will not come out unless there's a huge disaster that happens in terms of you know their technical ability to pull it off. Every single night will be about him. So every single headline will be about him. Well, 
I, I don't know. I'm going to have to rest this weekend. That's all I can say. Uh, so, what we should, uh, you should have a fun show then next Friday. It'll be quite a discussion, I'm, I'm sure, and many of these same questions, but the, the answers are going to be awfully different, I think. Um, so uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to COVID Calls. COVID Calls is on every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time, and I want to make sure to thank uh, Addison Francois and Samantha Montano for uh, giving what I thought was really great discussion and a lot of insight about these last four days of the DNC. Thanks to you both. Thank you, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you Monday at 5 o'clock. You too. Bye-bye.